0: Wasn't it a joy as the children are going out, all 200,000 of them, looks like, as the, wasn't it a joy to hear that um, your leaders are as committed as they are? Over $300,000 that your leadership is committed um, to this building campaign. That's, that's amazing. Um, this is not just a campaign in theory. It is something that your leadership is uh, showing that they believe in and showing it with their checkbooks. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, we're going to revisit a couple of texts we've been to before, but it'll be a few minutes before we get there. Sometimes we do that. I want to kind of set our thoughts first for just a moment. Grace Bible Church is what some call an independent or a non-denominational church meaning we don't answer to a hierarchy or an organization of any kind. We believe Scripture teaches the autonomy of the local church, and so we abide by that principle. I've been involved with independent churches my entire adult life, and now I have many, many friends who are pastors of independent churches. And I've observed, and in talking to other pastors as well, I've observed that independent churches such as ours sometimes can suffer from tunnel vision When it comes to a church facility, meaning that the usefulness and the importance of a facility can be viewed with suspicion at the worst and and undervalued maybe at the best. And over the years, because of that, I've kind of collected some notes and thoughts about the whole philosophy of a church building, a church facility. And I'd like to suggest some reasons that at times maybe the independent church has qualms or uncertainties or, or perhaps reservations about the pursuit of a helpful and useful facility particularly when it comes to giving money to making that happen to giving money to a place that we'll call a sacred space and we're going to spend more time on sacred space in a moment but I want to just suggest to you very quickly 10 reasons that sometimes we are suspicious of a, of a push to build a building the first reason is that we may lack an example We may lack an example. Independent churches can become overly isolated from like-minded churches. Sometimes we can say, uh, us four, no more, shut the door. That's kind of how we want to be. But we don't have the benefit, and there are benefits, that we don't have the benefit of a denomination or a church association, which may or may not have a ruling hierarchy. That's another topic for another day. But we don't have the benefit of those churches setting examples uh, as they do for one another. When a local church as part of a denomination sets out to improve their facility situation, they have many prior precedents and they also have other people who can even come in and give them wisdom, counsel, and guidance. A second reason we might be suspicious is that we may be suspicious of empty religion as represented by elaborate church buildings. We're we're, we're suspicious that if the building is elaborate, something empty and horrible must be going on inside. Early in the days of Protestantism, at the time of the Reformation, there was, a, there was a pushback against the idea of the cathedral, because of the good works theology and the, the empty rituals represented by Roman Catholicism, and so many well-meaning reformers were rightly concerned about the Catholic pride in cathedrals, in these massive places of worship. And so some groups swung the pendulum to the other direction, and they insisted that the only place the church ought to worship is in a square room with four white walls, plain and simple. In the early to mid-20th century, when Bible churches focused on verse-by-verse exposition and sound doctrine, when those churches began springing up, even many of them historically espoused the idea that the worship space should be plain, should be cheap, should be as as nondescript as possible pews were seen as representing that which is old and dead chairs of course are holy before god apparently that's hymnals were often abandoned pastors got rid of their suits and ties since preaching god's word is really about being informal and casual right and of course if those pastors were interviewed on a tv show they'd put their coat and tie on So in reality, many moved away from pride in formality and moved over to pride in informality. It was just a different version of pride. There's a third reason we may be suspicious. Our understanding of end times can make us uncertain about a facility. Our understanding of end times can make us uncertain. Classically, Bible churches in the last 50 years are dispensational, and that means we talk about end times about a third of the time. Why is that? Because the Bible talks about end times about a third of the time, and we simply teach what Scripture says. Jesus said that his coming will be like the days of Noah, people in rebellion and the world of chaotic sin when he suddenly comes. We are not making the world better and better every day. That's not happening. We read in the book of Revelation of the coming judgments on the earth of hundred pound hailstones, earthquakes, meteors. And we might think, why spend millions on a building when a well-timed rock from heaven is just going to squish it? But taken to the logical conclusion, we would become like the Millerites of the 1840s, sell everything we have, put on white robes, and climb trees to wait for Jesus, if we took it to the logical conclusion. Another reason we might be suspicious is that the seeker-sensitive movement has at times ruined the idea of a sacred space. They've ruined the idea of a sacred space. The argument that they give is that a church facility shouldn't look like a church. It shouldn't have old-school steeples, it's certainly no stained-glass windows. It should portray a modern, eclectic feel, because that's what the community needs. One writer wrote, quote, Would you like your doctor to use leeches and other medical, quote-unquote, technology of a few hundred years ago to treat you today? In other words, if your church building looks like a church building, whatever that is, then you're doing something wrong. Things like steeples and stained glass windows aren't inherently right. They're not inherently wrong. They're just design features. But that doesn't mean that sacred space isn't important. And by the way, that view assumes that people will come to faith in Christ because your facility looks good. That's a, that's a wrong soteriology. Here's a fifth reason we may be suspicious as an independent church. The right understanding of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit might minimize the importance of a sacred space. That's a long sentence, but the right understanding of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit might minimize the importance of a sacred space. We have our theology right on this. We don't have to go to a place to meet with God. We understand that. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Somebody might say, where is God? The simple answer is, first of all, he's everywhere. Second, he's everywhere Christians are because he indwells us. But that's the same crowd that will sometimes misuse Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. And they use that to mean, hey, we can do church anywhere. And by the way, what Jesus is saying is that when the local church calls someone out on sin and they won't repent and that person is thrown out of the church, heaven supports that decision. That's what that verse means. But again, we see the logical conclusion of that thinking in so many, far too many, many professing Christians who are arrogantly, proudly, conceitedly, haughtily, condescendingly, I have a couple more, superciliously and self-importantly saying, I don't need to be part of the local church. I can do church anywhere. That's the logical conclusion of that thinking. And so you have lone wolf believers saying, I don't need the church. I don't need to be a member of the church. Yes, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Yes, technically, we could gather under a big tree and call it church. Is that the pattern in Scripture? I'm going to show you that it's not. Here's a sixth reason that sometimes we are skeptical. We've been victimized by an overly romanticized idea of informality in worship, that That's somehow better, that one out-of-tune guitar is more spiritual than a choir and a band or an orchestra. That the word sermon is a bad word. We should say message or teaching or talk or conversation. By the way, what we have from the pulpit is not a conversation. It is you hearing God's word and making the decision to obey or disobey. It's that simple. That, That the music is meant to give you some sort of feeling instead of meant to draw your affections heavenward and to be offered as a gift to God as you review his attributes in music, that worship is something you do as a spectator with a latte. That's not okay. And because of this, the independent church can at times place a a low value on worship, on a worship space, because worship space can promote excellence and planning and intentionality in worship. I have heard a pastor that I, I love dearly and I I cherish his ministry absolutely tearing down the idea of having a choir loft. He says, well, what a waste of space. Really? A waste of space to sing the praises of our Savior? i say that's a great use of space. Here's the seventh reason sometimes we're skeptical. A cultural backlash that decor in a church building is somehow a waste of money. That Somehow that's a waste of money to decorate our church. Now, we're fine spending thousands decorating our homes, right? Because we live there. But we really should save money on the church building. It should be less ornate. Well, here's just a fact. You can argue with it all you want, but it's simply a fact. The people of Israel often lived in houses made of mud bricks, and they went to worship God in a temple made of gold. That was their priority. That reflected who was most important. Here's another reason sometimes we are skeptical. A cultural backlash that architecture doesn't matter. A cultural backlash that architecture doesn't matter. Again, oh, hey, let's just, let's just buy an old 7-Eleven and we'll gut it and we'll, we'll get an old gas station and we'll make that into the church. Well, the fact is, is that the tabernacle and the temple were designed using architecture as a tool. It was a tool to inform the worshiper of God's greatness you proceeded from the outside to the inside courtyard where sacrifice was offered. Then you went to a holy place and then the most holy place was at the very center. There was, a, there was a progression that you followed. That When the temple was constructed, it was built to be tall, to be grand, to be overwhelming because tall and grand says that God is bigger than me and I'm small. Now, yes, dead worship can happen in an ornate and beautiful church building, but I would contend that dead worship can happen in any church building to one degree or another because Jesus promised there would be weeds, tares among the wheat, that the church would contain frauds. Here's a ninth reason sometimes we're skeptical. The overuse of the slogan, the church is not a building. Is there anybody who actually thinks that the church is a building? Yes, unbelievers. Unbelievers. But there's no Christian who actually believes that. The church is, of course, defined as all the saved in Christ, most of them in heaven, a few of us still on earth. That's the church. But slogan theology is dangerous because it makes too many assumptions and it has too broad of an application. We could say this, Israel is not a building. Everybody agrees with that, but God proceeded to prescribe that they have a building in which they worship him. But I would put at the very top of the list reasons that we are sometimes skeptical or dubious or suspicious of the idea of a facility is the loss of our theology of sacred space. The loss of our theology of sacred space in efforts to be spiritual, we can sometimes become inadvertently platonic in our thinking. Now, what does that mean? Plato had a philosophy, Ancient Greek philosophers' philosophy was that all physical things are bad and all immaterial things, invisible things, are inherently good. And we can begin to devalue the physical thinking that somehow that's more spiritual. We, uh, what what uh, Randy Alcorn has coined is the term Christoplatonism where Christ and Plato are now mixed together where we say that everything spiritual is better that the kingdom is spiritual that our faith is merely spiritual instead of looking to what the scripture says about things like a new heaven and a new earth and the physical things that God has given us where we meet doesn't matter if you say that how you present yourself doesn't matter if we say that what you give doesn't matter if we say that in fact the more informal the more loose the more culturally relevant we are then the better when God met Moses in the burning bush did he say Moses let me see how you're dressed and I'm going to adjust to how you look no he said Moses take your sandals off because the place you're standing is holy ground it became sacred space God insisted that the space that he was worshipped in be holy unto him. Now, let me ask you this question. If sacred space is not important, why did Jesus get so angry when the temple was being misused? What did he say? He said, my father's house is a house of prayer. In other words, it's a sacred space. Now, I wanted to lay that groundwork so that we, we could begin to really evaluate why we give specific To a church facility campaign we've examined lots of reasons to give i think we've made a good biblical case but specific to our joyful generosity campaign this morning i want to focus our attention on sacred space doesn't god deserve worship worthy Uh, doesn't he deserve worship that's a that's a space in a space worthy of him yeah i was uh, reading an article recently that the average master bedroom suite in America today is bigger than the average house 100 years ago. We make sacred space for everything. Uh, Sylvie and I just recently moved into a house where for the first time ever we we have our own closets. She's very happy because I can be a slob and not, not mess with her space. We have sacred space for everything and yet not necessarily for worship. So today, I want to talk about giving because of God's glory. Giving because of God's glory, specifically to glorify God in and through a sacred space to say, you're important enough for us to dedicate a space just to you. Or to put it another way, today, I want to make the case for space. How about that? I want to give you three lines of evidence from Scripture. I'm going to give them to you up front. The first line of evidence, a sacred space is is a scriptural normality. A sacred space is a scriptural normality, and I'll repeat these for you. The second line of evidence, a sacred space is a financial priority. It's a financial priority, and the third line of evidence is that a sacred space is a spiritual necessity. It's a scriptural normality, a financial priority, and a spiritual necessity. We will get to Exodus 25 in our second line of evidence. For now, I want to just have you follow along with with a story I'd like to tell you through the Bible. The first line of evidence, a sacred space, is a scriptural normality. Where do we see the very first sacred space in Scripture? It is the Garden of Eden, the garden which was in the land of Eden. In my recent message on Sunday evening through Genesis 1 through 3 we made the observation that the garden of Eden had many many things in common with the temple of God why is that because they served the same function and i gave you a list of about 10 things that were similar it was sacred because this was the place that the god of the universe the god of creation met with mankind and the garden of Eden was a perfect environment it was planted by god himself it had all kinds of plants and flowers and trees it was bountiful it was beautiful It was good for food but how do we know this was sacred space how do we know this was the space designated specifically for mankind to meet with god because when adam sinned and his communion with god was broken he was evicted from the sacred space and now all communion with god would happen through a mediator he could not be in the garden well, what happened to sacred spaces then? Well, the second sacred space we see in scriptures, we would just call altars and shrines, altars and shrines. God would continue to show grace to, to many. His kingdom plan, as we've been studying on Sunday evenings, would still be progressing forward. And so we see mankind now meeting with God in lesser sacred spaces, which were still to be considered a holy place. Now, this didn't mean that God is not omnipresent, that he's not everywhere present, but the identification of a specific meeting place provided a a tangible understanding of the weightiness and the importance of what it means to commune with the holy God of creation. That that you're not informal with him, you are formal with him in your meeting with him. Genesis 4 records that Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, they brought their offering to the Lord. They brought their offering. What does that mean? It means they went someplace. They were not in Eden, but they had identified a space as sacred. I'm preaching Genesis 4 tonight, and I'll tell you where that place was. I'm not going to tell you right now. But this space involved making a sacrifice. What did that mean? It meant there had to be an altar. A place upon which to put the animal sacrifice and to burn it unto the Lord. Genesis 8 records Noah building an altar to sacrifice to the Lord after safely arriving on the new post flood world. The first sacred space is, in fact, the first thing that Noah built when he got off the ark. That's the first thing he did. When Abram first arrived in Canaan after obeying the Lord's call to leave his homeland, God made a covenant with Abram. He appeared to him physically, what we call a theophany, a physical manifestation of God. And Genesis 12, verse 7 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, how do we know that sacred space? Well, he built that altar in a place later to be named Shechem. More than 500 years later, by the way, Joshua gathered Israel at Shechem because it was the holy place where Abram had met with God. Well, after building the altar at Shechem, Genesis twelve eight says, from there, this is Abram, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai in the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram revisited Bethel after he had gone to Egypt and Genesis 13 says he worshiped the Lord there. Bethel becomes very, very important. Abram's grandson, Jacob, on his way to Haran as a young man, he rested at Bethel and it was there that he saw the vision of the ladder to heaven and was reminded by God that this land would be filled to overflowing with all of his descendants. And Jacob cried out in Genesis 28:16, surely the Lord is in this place And in the next verse, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob built a pillar there in Genesis 28 to commemorate this space as the house of God, which is in fact what the name Bethel means, the house of God. Many years later, when Jacob was returning from Haran and he stopped once again at Bethel, God changed Jacob's name to Israel and reiterated that Jacob would sire a nation, and would give rise to kings. Jacob set up another pillar and offered an offering at that pillar. And so that became a sacred space. Well, as we trace this story of sacred space through Scripture, we come to a third sacred space, one you're probably more familiar with, a tabernacle, the tabernacle of Israel, a a traveling worship center. And listen, this was no Coleman four-man tent here. This was a significant space. Exodus 26 tells us that it was to be constructed of 10 massive curtains of fine linen, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns. The curtains were to be embroidered with cherubim, the angels who were always at God's throne. The clasps that hold the curtains together were to be made of gold. Goat's hair was to be used for the covering for the tent connected by clasps of bronze. The frames for the tabernacle were to be made of acacia wood, which is much harder even than oak and other hardwoods. The frames were to have bases made of silver, and that's just the outside. God gives so much more ornate detail about every part of the structure, and that's just the traveling version. That, that's the, the portable version of a sacred space. The fourth sacred space we see in Scripture is the Temple of Jerusalem, which we could spend many weeks talking about, but the temple was prepared... Uh, for by king david with david raising and giving mass quantities of money for the temple and, and it would be built by his son solomon dr eugene merrill notes that the solomonic temple was quote a structure that by its very beauty massiveness and durability seemed much more suitable to the everlasting god and his presence among his people than the temporarily the temporality rather suggested by a mere tent As a matter of fact, in his lifetime, King David said in 2 Samuel 7, verse 2, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. He said, it's not right that I live in a palace and the ark of God in a tent. The temple of God built by Solomon was to be grand. It was to be amazing. The inside ceiling was about 180 feet long, uh, wide, 90 feet wide, and 50 feet high the highest point on the temple was about 20 stories high it was built with massive stones and they had to be prepared at the quarry because god indicated that there was not going to be the sounds of hammering and sawing and all kinds of things at the site if you can imagine them trying to silently place these stones that weighed tons but even in the construction the space was to be sacred The inner sanctuary floors, walls, and ceilings were all of cypress and cedar. And on the cedar was to be carved gourds and blooming flowers. The innermost sanctuary was a cube. It was 30 feet high, wide, and long. And it was completely overlaid with gold. And if you do the math, that's 5,400 square feet of gold plating. And in the innermost sanctuary were two cherubim, angels made of olive wood, 15 feet high each, with a wingspan of 15 feet, and all around the walls were carved angels everywhere, palm trees, flowers. On the other part of the building, it was decorated with carved pomegranates. Now, the question you might have is, what's with all the gold, the cedar, the cypress, the palm trees, the flowers, the pomegranates? What was the first sacred space? It was the Garden of Eden. The temple of God was meant to be, number one, a reminder of paradise lost. And number two, a looking ahead to what will be restored. It is to be Eden on earth. And when the temple was finished, it was dedicated. And all the priests of God went to the holy place, not the innermost sanctuary, but just the area outside it, to be dedicated. And listen to the description of what worship in the temple of God was like. Second Chronicles 5 says this, And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen, meaning they're dressed up, with cymbals and harps and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. That, brothers and sisters, is sacred space. That is not sitting under a tree with a coffee saying, let's call this church. But now, under the new covenant in Christ, where did the church also want to gather? They also wanted to gather at the temple. Why? Well, because they're worshiping the same God just under a new covenant. They're worshiping the same God. And so in fact, the new church in Jerusalem gathered in the outer courts of the temple in massive numbers of many thousands. But then persecution began. Stephen was executed by the council. It resulted in the dispersing of many of the Jerusalem Christians and now meeting at the temple became almost impossible. Christians often tried to use the Jewish synagogues to gather as well. In Ephesus, Paul proclaimed the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue, which would be just a small meeting place. But he had had great opposition there, and the true believers in Christ followed Paul out of the synagogue and they met in the hall of Tyrannus, which was a lecture hall or a school. The church at Corinth met in the home of Philemon. The church at Laodicea met in the house of Nympha. The church in Rome, or at least part of it, met in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. And so for a long time, the church of Jesus Christ, for all intents and purposes, had no sacred space. And when persecution really became deadly under the reign of Nero and his successors. Having a sacred space anywhere in the Roman Empire became virtually impossible. Early in the 4th century, Christianity was deemed legal, and guess what churches started doing? They started building churches, church buildings everywhere and the churches in the 4th century 5th century and 6th century just started springing up like crazy and think about this you know we're doing a campaign for three years these are people who had waited for generations to have their own space so the first line of evidence is a sacred space in scripture is normal it's a scripture, scriptural normality second line of evidence a sacred space is a financial priority It's a financial priority. Now we can come to Exodus 25. God has just rescued Israel from Egypt. He has given them the Israelite covenant represented by the Ten Commandments. Israel has agreed to follow the Lord their God and to serve Him because of His great love for them. And almost immediately, God begins to delineate sacred space. They had met with God at Mount Sinai, but now they would be on the move. God required that they have a space dedicated solely to, To his worship. And this would be the tabernacle, the portable worship space to travel with Israel. Israel had just plundered the Egyptians when, by God's power, the Egyptian neighbors were just giving their money and their wealth to Israel. What was that wealth for? It was to build the tabernacle. So here we have the orders given to Moses Exodus 25, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him you shall receive the contribution for me and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them gold silver and bronze blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen goats hair tanned ram skins goat skins acacia wood oil for the lamps spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense onyx stones and the stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And so verse 8 gives the purpose of this structure, that I may dwell in their midst, that this may be the place that God meets with mankind in a mediated covenant relationship. How important was this place, though? Well, we have to put these instructions in their proper context. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, but when and where? Go back with me to Exodus 19 and let's just trace this. Exodus 19, verse 1. Exodus 19, verse 1 says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Skip down now to verse 16 verse 16 on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled when moses brought the people out of the camp to meet god and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain now mount sinai was wrapped in smoke because the lord had descended on it in fire the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. So Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to the top, meeting with God. Now, what do you think the rest of Israel is going to be tempted to do? I want to see him too. And so in verse 21 the lord said to moses go down and warn the people lest they break through to the lord to look and many of them perish also let the priests who come near to the lord consecrate themselves lest the lord break out against them in other words you don't get to just meet with god any anytime and any place you want then in chapter 20 god spoke to moses the ten commandments the covenant god was making with his people and the next several chapters give some preliminary laws How the covenant was to be worked out and lived in society. And now the people had a choice to make. Look at Exodus 24. In verse 3, here's their choice. Remember, God has just spoken the law to Moses. Moses came and told the people all the words of the law of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And now for the first time, verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, what he had just written down, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And here's their signature, And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses has written a copy of the law. The people have agreed to it. And now God is going to instruct Moses, come back up the mountain to get God's written word. The tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments. Ten on each tablet. One copy for Israel and one copy for God, so to speak, as any contract or covenant would be in the ancient Near East. Chapter 24, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And then verse 17 now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And what do you think the first thing God told Moses was? How important was his holiness and the ability of people to meet with God? The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. For what? For the sanctuary. It's the first thing when Moses went back up the mountain. And then now from Exodus 25 all the way through chapter 30, God gives the specific details, the design elements of the tabernacle. It's ornate. It's intricate. Turn with me to Exodus 31. Exodus 31, the very end of the chapter. And we see now one of the greatest moments in human history when God communicates in written form to his people. Chapter 31, verse 18 And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, you remember the very first instruction God gave to Moses concerning the people. Exodus 25, take a contribution, receive an offering from the wealth of the people for a sanctuary. But already, Before Moses even had a chance to get down off the mountain that second time, what were they doing? Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, "'Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him.'" So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he fashioned the gold from their hand and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the lord and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play instead of using their wealth to make a sanctuary to rightly worship the living god they used their wealth to already violate the first and second commandments to have no other gods and to not make an image of any kind they even made an image that was supposed to represent god Aaron even said in verse 6, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, in Hebrew to Yahweh. Specifically what he said, don't do this. Well, God told Moses, you better get down there. In verse 7, God's people had already broken the covenant, so Moses shattered the two tablets, in essence, tearing up the contract that God had so graciously made. God disciplined Israel severely, 3,000 men dying at the sword at God's command And then God stunned Moses and he stunned the people. He told them in chapter 33, go to the land I have promised you, but I am not going with you. Chapter 33, verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. But Moses interceded on behalf of the people. He appealed to God on the basis of God's own glory. Look with me at chapter 33, beginning in verse 15. He appeals on the basis of God's glory. Verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And so Moses requests to see the glory of God as confirmation that God would in fact be with Israel. So Moses went back up Mount Sinai. He received two new tablets. God showed his glory to Moses by proclaiming with words his great glory. Chapter 34, look with me at verse 6. This is how he proclaimed his glory. Chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow the anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. And God relented. And he would continue as Israel's God. Now all this is to say that God's priority never changed. When Moses first went up the mountain, the first thing he told, God told him was, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, take for them and take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. Meanwhile, the people disobey. They're disciplined. Moses receives two new tablets. Now he's back before the people. Now what's the first thing that he says on God's behalf? the first thing. He gives a brief reminder of Sabbath law, just a couple of sentences, chapter 35, verse 4. And you almost could write in your margin, now where were we? Moses said to all the congregation of the people, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze. And it's almost verbatim from Exodus 25. And I would imagine this time there was a big "Yes, sir," he said "Whoever is of a generous heart, God had killed the worst offenders concerning the golden calf. he had threatened to abandon his people. The people had narrowly missed the wrath of God. God wasn't looking for merely external obedience. He required a right heart of worship, a tender and a yielded and humble and a submissive heart. And look how this is emphasized. Chapter 35, beginning in verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicating an offering of of gold to the Lord And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And you go on with this list, acacia wood, verse 25. Every skillful woman spun with her hands, verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill, verse 28. And spices and oil for the light, anointing oil, fragrant incense, Verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord. Now, how many of the people had their hearts moved? Look at verse 22 at the end. Every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. What about the ones who were not willing? They were dead. They were dead. That's just the Bible. But this wasn't just a one-time gift. The one-time gift was spectacular. But look at verse chapter 36, verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Ohaliab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning. Verses 6 and 7 says that they gave until they had all that they needed. In the sovereign purpose of God, how did God use the golden calf incident? He used it to soften their hearts and to reveal the true worshipers. And what happened to those remaining who had repented? They were stirred in their hearts to create a beautiful, sacred space to meet with their holy and kind and generous God who had delivered them from Egypt. So was sacred space a financial priority? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we learn at least four principles from this episode. First of all, it was God's idea to give an offering for the sacred space. This was God's idea. This wasn't some human-formulated plan. It was God who said it, and he was willing to kill to get his point across. He said it once, they rebelled. When they got through all of that, and he relented and he forgave them, now where was I? Oh yes, bring a contribution. The second principle we learn they were to be gifts from the heart. They were to be gifts from the heart. The implication is, is that all who had gratitude to the Lord were to give. Who was that? Well, in this case, it was everyone. They'd been purified. It's the third principle that we learn they didn't give equal gifts. They didn't give equal gifts. Some gave gold, others gave silver, others gave bronze, others gave the labor of love, of making the tabernacle, the skill of sewing or making things. And the fourth principle we learned was that the giving was continual. What was the pattern here? There was an initial gift. There was a continued offering, and they gave until the job was done. What are we doing in joyful generosity? All we're doing is following the pattern of Scripture. That's it. Somebody says, where'd you get this idea? Easy, Exodus. First line of evidence. Sacred space is a scriptural normality. Second, a sacred space is a financial priority. Final line of evidence that sacred space ought to be important to us. A sacred space is a spiritual necessity. It's a spiritual necessity. You don't have to turn here, just listen. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 10, Moses reminded of Israel of how 40 years earlier God had given them a command. "'The Lord said to me, "'Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, "'so that they may learn to fear me all the days, "'so that they they live on the earth, "'and that they may teach their children also.'" key verse here, key phrase, gather the people to me. Now, in our individualistic cultural thinking, we generally hear the word gather primarily in functional terms, as a functional command. That the primary reason for the assembly was to simply facilitate the hearing of God's word. The assembly was simply a means to that end, the only means possible in that culture. In that culture, if they didn't assemble, they couldn't hear God's word. It was very simplistic but now the invention of many good things things incidentally which God has used for his glory but the invention of these things can have the effect of degrading and lowering the importance of physically gathering together when Gutenberg invented the printing press which of course enabled the mass production of the Bible but it also enabled the production of books about the Bible and now the need to gather was slightly diminished with the invention of voice recording and putting it on physical devices that, be, that could be carried with you, the radio, the internet, podcast, social media. Now I can listen to the word of God preached anytime, anywhere. And of course, this is a wonderful tool and a wonderful way to spread the gospel. But it has had an unintended, terrible impact on the importance of gathering together. Now you can be part of a pseudo-gathering. Now you can be part of an electronic gathering. There are men now calling themselves online church pastors. That is an oxymoron. You can be with the church or you can be online. You cannot be both. When I worked in the development department at the Master's Seminary, I got people who would call me from all over the world and and I heard this a lot. They would say, I don't like any of the churches in my area so John MacArthur is my pastor. I listen to him on the radio. And I would always ask, may I tell you something in love? John MacArthur's not your pastor. He doesn't know your name. He's never set eyes on you. He can't be your pastor. He can't be your shepherd. You were to gather with the church. So why do we gather together? Why don't we just have a lot of little tiny Bible studies? Why don't we all just agree that at 1045 every Sunday, we'll all listen to a recording of a sermon together and then we'll comment online and we'll post about it. Why not do that? Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, gathering is a foretaste of the time when all redeemed humanity will gather together. This is a little foretaste of heaven. Listen, if you study in time, study eschatology, it's all about gathering. First, the, the the unsaved are gathered together and judged, and they're gathered together into the lake of fire. The saved are gathered together for blessing and reward for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're gathered together to worship. Read Revelation 4 and 5, and you see the saints in heaven. What are they doing? They're gathered together. This is a little tiny taste of heaven. There's another reason we gather together. Gathering is the best way to sing God's praises. Gathering is the best way to sing God's praises. Psalm 149, one praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. In the 80s and 90s, one of the reasons that the cell church movement essentially failed, the cell church movement said, let's just gather in little tiny home Bible studies, and let's just use a, a CD or a recording, and we'll play a recording of some guy playing the guitar, and the six of us will sing a song together. That was nice, but you know what people started doing? They started sneaking off to big giant churches so they could sing with a couple thousand people because they needed to be with the body it's the third reason we gather together gathering binds us together and keeps unlikely people together it keeps unlikely people there are people sitting in this room that if you ran into, into each other in the mall and didn't know each other you probably would pass right by saying you're a completely different person than me i don't even know what to say to you right but under the banner of the cross we are all together and it's glorious. It's wonderful. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of the saved, not of certain social or ethnic or economic groups. The gathering of God's people places people from all walks of life together. There's another reason we gather. It builds up the body of Christ. It builds up the body of Christ. Paul told the elders of the Ephesian church in Acts 20, verse 32, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are being sanctified. What is the word of his grace? In this context, it specifically means the gathering to hear the word of God proclaimed. And it builds you up. And one more reason, gathering says, I identify with those who love Christ. It says, I identify with those who love Christ. Somebody says, I love Christ, I just don't love his church. Then you don't love Christ. That's like saying, I love myself, I just hate my entire everything doesn't make sense First John 2 19 they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us somebody says I don't need the local church well you're also saying I don't need Christ those two go hand in hand a sacred space is a spiritual necessity so we have great tremendous spiritual and scriptural precedent great spiritual confidence and with that confidence we boldly proclaim that sacred space is important it is a scriptural normality it is a financial priority it's a spiritual necessity now i told you last week we wouldn't we wouldn't let you wander around looking for a commitment card so we put one in your bulletin next sunday is commitment sunday in which we're following the example of the, the israelites we're bringing our initial gift we're bringing our commitment for continued giving. And this is going to be a very unique service that we're having next week. We're going to receive the Lord's table at the beginning of the service next week. Those of you with parent, parents of small children, you'll need to shepherd your kids this week. Shepherd your children. The Lord's table is for those who have professed faith in Christ. So speak to them about it. We will also receive our normal offering as usual next Sunday. But then at the end of the service, we'll receive a second offering. And that's the time to give your initial joyful generosity offering and your commitment card. And we're going to sing together. We're going to do something upbeat and and joyful and heavenly. We've made a very strong case that we give what is in our hearts to give. There's no compulsion. There's no manipulation. Just give what you believe the Lord would have you to give in light of all that you've learned in the last weeks. And we ultimately give for God's glory Two weeks after that on Celebration Sunday, March 24th, we'll have our normal worship service. But at the end, we're going to get everybody from the classrooms and all the teachers and we'll get everybody down here and we'll see what you have decided to do along with the Lord, what the Lord has done through us. The children and youth ministries have been gathering funds in a coin drive for an initial gift. The women's retreat that we just had had a spontaneous auction that raised an amount of money um, for the building fund. We'll announce your initial gift and we'll announce what your total three-year commitment is. Whatever the Lord does, we'll be so thankful and so grateful to him. And then just to celebrate and to enjoy each other, we'll serve you lunch and we'll eat picnic style wherever you want. Just just come in here. If your small kids spill drinks, you can pay for the new carpet, whatever you want. <laughs> and so we have a lot to look forward to. Isn't it a blessing to just be a part of the church of Jesus Christ? And we've said all along, this is so that If we raise our goal of $800,000, of a million dollars, and we build another building, and if the only thing that happens as a result of that is that one person hears the gospel and goes to heaven for all eternity, is that worth a million bucks? Absolutely. Great things in the church are not accomplished by great people. Great things are accomplished by weak, dependent people who worship a great God. And so let's see what our great God will do through weak people, all for his glory. Our Father, we give you thanks. We are in wonder and in awe that we who were shaking our fists at you, who were in rebellion against you, that while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were at enmity with you, you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die on our behalf, to take the penalty for the sin debt that we owe to you. The books and books and books which contain the list of, of all of our sinful thoughts and deeds and words, which libraries could not hold. We've been sinning since the time we could first speak, from the time we could crawl. We were selfish. We were self-motivated. We thought only of ourselves. And yet, while we were living these lives of selfishness, all along, you were providing Christ. You were providing a sacrifice for sin. And Lord, it is our great joy. It is our duty. It is our privilege to pass the message of the gospel on to everyone we possibly can. And that would be our prayer. And Lord, I would like to pray also for a man or a woman who may be here today who has not come to faith in Christ, who has not received that free gift of salvation by which the Lord Jesus would pay for his or her debt of sin. How simple it is to come, to repent, to tell you that they have nothing to offer except their sin. And I pray that this might be the day that you would change their hearts, not in regard to giving, but in regard to receiving salvation. And that would be our prayer, Lord, not only for those here today, but for all who are listening and for all that you would bring. We love you and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.